this is not another one of those cast pod thingies, <laughs> is it? Tajan's man, I yeah, know it. I know it. Yeah, I know it too. I really do. Time. Ding, ding, part two. If you didn't listen to part one last week with Outback Mike, go back, have a listen to that, and then you can catch up to this one right now. I'd like to thank everybody for all the DMs that I got this week. So many. So I reckon it really touched a, a good good spot in everyone's heart, this um, podcast. So the, so this one here, we go a little bit deeper and it's a bit more soulful, so gets a little bit um yeah bit bit emotional at times but we're gonna do this anyway this podcast is brought to you by fish skins ao and guess what we've got a 20 percent discount code to give you on all the original the deep range that's the coral trout the mahi mahi the wahoo i wear them all the time so 20% off and all you have to use the code is Taz Yarns all lowercase Taz Yarns all lowercase did I just repeat myself who cares let's take it away Mike let's sail into the tip of the cape let's go so heading up there you would have come across some areas um, I don't like we said we don't want to name the areas but can you explain some like how picturesque and beautiful some of these areas are up sure. there? Sure. Well, I mean, obviously, up until Port Douglas, there's, there really is people all over the place. So there's tinnies yep. going, going past, and almost every second island's got a catamaran on a mooring behind it. Not every second, but uh, probably every second one. So it is it is beautiful. I mean, we've, uh, Hinchinbrook's beautiful. We've got mounds going up 1,200 metres. Mm. That's, that's the same height as the base station at Threadbow Ski Resort in yeah. New South Wales. It's <laughs> a, from the ocean too. Yeah, from the ocean. Yeah, it's a spectacular peak. Um, yeah, so there's a lot of jungle stuff there. And I think that's why it's wetter as well because that southeast yeah. is pushing that moist air up and it's all raining back down. I find that area is just like, you think you're waiting for a pterodactyl to come flying out. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's just like, it's, it looks like Jurassic Park, that area. <laughs> it, it does, yeah. And it's so jungly and they're so tropical. And it, when, you, when you do shave in past a headland or an island, you just see the most amazing jungly trees and stuff which um you know you just think oh there must be lots of bush tucker but it wasn't a great time of year for bush tucker unfortunately yeah but i was trying to stick well i knew the croc risk isn't as high really south of port douglas the croc risk isn't that high and i think it's because we just removed the problem crocs yeah i'm assuming um so i didn't mind so much camping in river mouths and stuff there even on the canoe yeah but north of sort of well when i got to cape trip north i'm like nah it's not safe doing that anymore (laughs) So um, I sort of had extra plans for when it got that crocky. Yeah, but it was really nice saying goodbye to Low Isles or Cairns area yep. and just waving goodbye to phone coverage as well. Like mm. I had hummed and ahed, like I was initially going to go no phone coverage, no posts, but the reality is I'm making a film out of this and I do you know, need to pay back the family finances from all this yeah. time out. So a following is good, and I did feel like communicating, but I'm glad I had that, that big chunk towards the end where there's just no phone coverage yep. pretty much for all of Cape York. So yep. that was that was good to have that enforced. Yep, you can't talk to anybody. Yep. So up that way, then you got all the noise. Like no, if you don't, if you watch back to bases, you'll see a little bit of it. But the white silica sand dunes that just go, they're like mountains to the sea. It's just like yeah, 
there's like I don't know if many people know about it. It's just so so yeah. beautiful, isn't it? I didn't really know about those sand dunes until I did this trip as well. Uh, I mean, they're further north up, sort of the top three top quarter of the Cape. Further down, I was um, I was actually offshore a lot there because I was cutting the corners across Princess Charlotte Bay. I didn't have permission from those traditional owners, um, whereas I did from other ones, and it's pretty crocky in Princess Charlotte mm, Bay anyway, yeah, right? <laughs> Bathurst <laughs> um, Bay, then. Yeah, it's crocky as. <laughs> yeah. um, so I cut the corner across there, and then I then, because it's so crocky there, every sand spit's got a croc attack story. Mm. Um, I tried to stay five, 10 miles offshore on those sand spits if I could. Yep. Uh, and, but I did duck into Lockhart River because I caught up with the traditional owners there and had an interview with, uh, with Wayne Butcher, who's the mayor, but he also has a good... Aboriginal education, the important yep. stuff, you know. So he just, you know, I'd ask him questions about stuff and I'd just go, oh, I see all the areas that I was going wrong in and it's just assumed knowledge for them. Yep. Um, so th then I you know, I still went back out on the islands. I just tried to avoid river mouths. Yeah. Because there's some big crocs, big crocs around. Even like sometimes the mouth of one big river there, you pull up, you can see a big croc, three, four metres, and he just slides into the water as soon as you get there, which is pretty much standard. Mm. And you're like, well, is he... Is where's he, he going? <laughs> exactly. Where's he going? Why'd he slide in? He's probably sliding in because he's just going to watch me for the yeah. whole time, you know? Mm. Uh, yeah, so... It's like they're, they're so dumb, but they're so calculated and smart, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yep. Just their, their bloody... Whatever's nature's put into them over the thousands and millions of years. It's yeah. Just turn them into this one... <laughs> one predator, one one idea, and they're not, they're not, they won't just take every opportunity mm. and eat you. Like I've had lots of situations where they, well, definitely could have taken people I've been fishing with. Like I've been fishing in the Northern Territory, I used to fish off the river. My troop carry a car two meters high, and I'd back it down to the water's edge, and there'd be people up to their tops of their thighs catching barra, releasing barra at night uh, with huge, like full-grown four five meter crocs, just like a couple of car lengths away. And I'm showing on the torch, and I'm like, mate. You know about that? And he just wouldn't even talk to me. He just put his hand up like, shut up, mate. I oh, know. Shut up, tourist. And this guy was doing this. I saw him there three nights. Yep. Um, and he was not being taken. The opportunity was there. And I've seen many other times when they could have taken it. Yep. But then I've had other times when I've been doing stuff. I've been releasing a, a catch and release over the side of the boat. And a croc's nearly taken my hand off just because I'm trying to use the pliers and the fish. And my mate's just got a paddle and donked it. And yep. so other time, and I've been fishing in other times in shallow creeks where I didn't even realise there was big crocs. Yep. And I'd been crossing the creeks up to my armpits to get a lure off a snag on the other side. And then a bit further down, I see a big five metre, really wide one coming down. And it thinks it hasn't seen me. Um, I think so. I haven't seen it. So it like put its claws into the mud and slide to a stop and then just slowly walk backwards till it's a beamy and we'll just wait. And I know that it's waiting. If, if I catch a fish and go and really get, yeah. pull it off, it'll, it'll grab me. And that, yeah. that was a place where I found out later this croc had been taking a lot of cattle. So yep. you can't trust them. Mm. No, it's a, especially up that way, it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's prehistoric still, isn't it? It is, yeah, <laughs> which is great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, um, in your navigation-wise stuff up there, you went to, like, you used a sextant. Like, I've got yeah. no idea how they work. I just know they work off the stars. I don't know what, who, how you line them up. Can you explain how they're actually used? Sure. <laughs> but so most of the time, um, I had old charts, and really you can just go map to ground, and you go, I'm on this island, and the chart says to my northwest there should be another island, and you can hike up a peak and go, oh, yeah, there it is, and you yep. can see where you're going. And the reality is when you're doing the reefs, every reef that's sort of um, – important from a navigational perspective has a bloody thing sticking yeah, out of it beacon, so it's beacon you, on it. but you want to cheat or not you can't help but just <laughs> oh that's the one it's got a leg light on it yeah but um when i got to those sand caves in the top half of cape york it's a bit harder there might be a bunch of reefs but you don't know which one you're on so that's when the sextant would come in so this sextant it's a genuine 
19th century sextant, which I bought secondhand off Gumtree. And um, <laughs> I couldn't get it to focus because the focal length was wrong. So I ended up fixing the focal length with bamboo. The horizon mirror um, is supposed to be like glass, but half of it is made like a mirror. And that all the mirroring had flaked off. Yep. And so there's an emergency method for fixing mirrors because James Morrow would have had this. His, his mirror would have died. Yep. So you basically paint half of the mirror black and use that as an emergency method. And to make black paint, I used the native, bee, native beeswax and charcoal. Yep. And it works. So you, you, the sun's not bright. You don't need to use as many of those filters to block the sunlight out. But you can see the sun and you can get it accurate within a couple of miles, no problem at all. Jeez. So all you do that, all you're doing then is at noon when the sun's at its highest point, you're just measuring the angle to the sun and then comparing that against an almanac. So I've got the two, yep. 2021 almanac. He would have had the previous, yeah, his 1846 almanac. Uh, and then all because it's a north-south coastline, you just draw a line where that latitude is. Yep. And you go, okay, well, that's the only reef. It's, it's either this reef or the next reef. Yep. And that's all you need. Mm. Jeez. That's pretty simple, but sophisticated yeah. to a point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you actually don't. You don't really need a sextant. You can do it with stars in a different way. The southern hemisphere is a little bit more tricky, but um, yeah, there is plenty of ways you can fix yourself um, if if you know how to use the maps and and what information you do. Do you can sort of triangulate in using a bunch of funny little methods. Yep. So, and also the men mental side of things. When did you? I felt with talking to as the first couple of weeks it was just like shit what have i got myself like you explained when you were young what have yeah. i got myself into then he said it like week two he just flicked into like survival mode this is it i'm gonna make it there's nothing else is, is that sort of your mindset yeah pretty much i think the first week was it's too easy don't you know this is the calm before the storm which yep. it, which it was um, the middle few weeks, it was like, actually, you know what, this is going... Well, that, sorry, when the rudder broke, that straight away... Before that, I had been thinking, oh, I'd like to actually go out and parallel the outer reef if I could. Yep. Because that, you know, it's more beautiful out there and I'm making a film and beauty is mm. important. But I decided after that, no, nah, this is about survival. If I make it, that will be good. Yeah. yeah. If, if I go out there, I'm taking a... I'm rolling the dice that I'm going to need a rescue and stuff more as well. So I decided, no, don't, don't sightsee. Just try and make it and be happy if you make it. So yeah, the rudder was a, a big shift in in what things might happen, um, and then the middle bit, I was actually making some big days with big kilometres. I was going, you know what, this is all right. Geez, I'm gonna I'm gonna rock it out the other side of this. Um, but once the, I always knew that that you get these periods where it blows for two or three weeks, 25, 30 knots, and you're stuck. Everybody's mm. stuck. Even the oh, the trawlers will still go out in it, but. Um, for anyone in a small boat, you just yeah. you just don't go out when it's like that. Yeah, I've been stuck here for <laughs> two months. <laughs> yeah, yeah I was stuck, stuck in your house. Stuck in my house. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. When you're on a sand fly ridden sand spit, though, that's horrible. But you've yeah. just got to suck it up. And mm. I, I did get stuck for ten days on one particular island, which is like this beautiful, picturesque, you know, um, castaway island. It was it was the best one to get stuck on probably the entire trip. Yeah. And uh, it had coconut trees and. Uh, I got a crayfish there and I speared mullet there and I was really, really tired though, like really tired. I go through these bouts of um, just going, okay, I get up in the morning, I need to walk down the beach and try and get a mullet. And I just, I'd walk down the beach and I'd just stumble along, had sore feet because I had coral cut on one toe and a fish bone had gone through my other foot and it really hurt and I just went, 
no, just go back and lie down. No, yep. just go back and lie down. And I'd try to get in the afternoon. And then some energy system would have come from somewhere and I'd have more energy. Yep. And I'd, I'd do it. And then yeah, I didn't get a mullet there for like seven days. And after seven days, I finally got one and I was just stoked. Yep. So that's one of the things in survival situations that you get this fatigue that sets in. And if you start to stay in one spot and don't move, you, that's it, you're gone. It's mm. a little bit like hypothermia. Yep. Where you're like, oh, I'm really tired. I might just sit here and I might just have a little nap. That's when yep. you stop functioning. Um, yeah, so <laughs> I remember the term yeah. <laughs> for the oh, first time it, ever. It links to the bloody computer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so maintaining a discipline that you've got to keep doing your tasks is really important in a survival situation, and that's one of the things that I've learnt by doing it hard on military survival courses. Don't it, once you start getting too comfy and just want to go to sleep, you just spiral off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've, I found I've done a few fasts, like seventy-two hour fasts and stuff like that. And so I know what it feels like to be hungry. <laughs> and I actually listened to a podcast on Rogan where he spoke to this young lady who lived in South Korea, uh, North Korea. And I sort of sympathised with her because when you are starving, there's only one thing you think about. Yep. And that's what the North Koreans do. They starve their country so they can't think of revolting. There's no going against the government because all you're worried about is food. Hmm. And that's the way she sort of explained it. Right. And so when you're, when you're 72 hour fasting, if you go, I've, I've put a video up somewhere and you go back through it, all I'm talking about is food. Yep. <laughs> There's yeah. nothing else. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah, that's how you would have been the same thing. Your, your, well, your the, energy would have been depleted and you just. The first 72 hours is actually the worst from a, a drive for hunger perspective. Yep. Um, it does get a little bit better after that, but. Um, I was also, I, I dried kangaroo meat and had some coconut stuff that I would take for those times when I wasn't catching fish. So I had something at least going in my stomach. Um, but yeah, discipline-wise, it's really hard, particularly when you're at home. And yeah, I've never actually around. tried that, but I know that I'd struggle with it and I wouldn't be able to do it very well. <laughs> Out there, it's, it's a bit easier because you don't have a choice. But I was rationing that, you know, that bit of native honey that I took and stuff as well. And sometimes I'd just be like, I know I've, I've gone past my ration, but I just need to stick my tongue in that, that bamboo thing that's holding my honey because I just need some sugar. Yeah, I think sugar was probably the thing I lacked the most. Yeah, because also your body goes into ketosis as well. So you, you, you start... Yeah, instead of using glucose, you're using ketones as as um, energy. So your yeah. energy source changes. Yeah, I've heard about that. I don't know what I was doing. I'm assuming I was just. I'd assume my muscles actually stayed pretty good, which I was surprised by, probably because of the kangaroo meat. But I must have been in that thing because I had no fat. There's no fat yeah. at all. I'd like to do a BMI on you at the moment. I reckon you're probably about not eight percent or something like that. Yeah, I yeah. I'm, I mean, probably seven. I've been. I've, there's a little bit of that skin was like paper. Yeah. Um, when I finished. Uh, like as like a greyhound, I filmed myself, which I'm glad, I'm glad I did before I ate anything. Yep. Um, yeah, it was, it was quite a weird state to be in, just no fat. But yeah, there was a fair bit of muscle there, so that was good at least. So, yeah. but I must have been in that ketone area. Yeah, because I watched you on your videos when you were building your boat. You were a, a thicker sort of bloke, but yeah, yeah. now you, now you still got your muscle, but you yeah your frame's still there. Yeah, but I know my face. Well, I didn't think my face was gone, but everyone told me it was. Um, but then I was just looking back through my Instagram posts. From, um, from you know when I started the trip and I looked like 10 years younger and my face is plump and stuff and now I just look like this weird old guy with like sunken cheeks <laughs> that, that's what they also say with when you're fasting and stuff like that your body promotes growth hormone as well so it's actually supposed to be good for you yeah as well oh. so <laughs> good so I don't know <laughs> there's two it's, ways to look at it there is and, and yeah time will tell 
<laughs> but I've definitely got my energy. I can run upstairs now, but before I just had none of that short-term energy burst thing just was gone. And I found when I was spearing as well, um, I'd go down and I'm like, man, normally I'm really eager to spear fish because I just love that hunting thing. And yep. I'm just like, oh, and I, my arm wouldn't be able to steady the spear well enough. And I just, I just sort of give up and walk up the beach. And yep. I wasn't accurate enough. But then later on when that energy was enough that I could steady the spear because that's what it's all about the technique of steadying the spear and imagining i imagine that the the laser pointer is just resting on where the fish is yeah if it's a still fish if it's a fast fish you just got to have a stab <laughs> um yeah but without that strength and without that steadying ability you can't throw the spear accurately yeah. so so i had a look at your video on it that it's you throw with a woomera is a woomera yeah woomera. so yeah. yeah you throw it and it's got like a, a device that helps throw the spear pretty much it's a, it's a it, the spear sits inside another yeah it's, there's a little notch on the end and uh, it sits in a, a little hole that you hollow in the back of the spear, and it's how Aboriginal people used to yep. throw spears. And lots of um, people around the native peoples around the world use it. it; just provides you heaps more leverage. You can throw it faster and more accurately. And um, people, Torres Strait Islanders, I understand, had a great deal of respect and fear of Aboriginal people with the Woomera because yep. they were really accurate and really fast. So that was one of the sort of you know life goals that I had is I wanted to spear a mullet with yeah. a with a woomera and a spear so I've been practicing for the last year and a half in the backyard just like hitting moldy lemons that had fallen on the ground and yeah. stuff um, and also practicing how to allow for refraction in the water and stuff so I ended up getting uh, quite a few mullet that way so I was stoked really really yeah. happy about that I'm um, I'm sort of I'm gonna, I have never eaten a mullet and I, I sort of want to <laughs> I want to yeah. see what they take because I reckon it'd be really fishy and it'd be a really oily sort of taste. That's what I thought too. Because yeah. I hadn't, up until this trip, I'd never eaten the mullet as well because they were sort of seen as shit fish in the Northern Territory. <laughs> and um, you'd, just, you'd catch them just by jagging them. You'd be fishing for barra. And because they're vegetarians, you'd just hook them in the back sometimes and you'd mm. throw them back. And then I think it was, um, might have been watching As saying much on Back to Basics, oh, these taste really good. I was like, oh, that's good. Yep. I try those. Um, and so. On this trip, yeah, they, they, they do taste really good. They, the egg row in them is great. Tastes like tastes like egg, like almost like a chicken egg. Yep. And the flesh is really quite oily. Oily. It has like almost this yellow oil over it. And I was just sucking that oil down because I just needed that yeah. so much. Yeah. yeah your taste. body needs those fats, those oily. When you in all that um, uh, uh, what do they call it? It's a diet, the carnivore diet and stuff like that. Yeah. You need a lot of oil and fat. Yeah. In your diet to. Yeah, that's pretty much where you get energy from. Yeah, so, yeah. And the omega-3s and all that are in that. They reckon they're the highest fish with omega-3, the old mullet. Yeah, right. Yeah, well, that must be in that yellow oil that comes out of it. Mm. Yeah. yeah. In fact, towards the end of the trip, right at the end, I actually learnt a better way of getting the meat out of the head. So when it, with the traditional owners up in TI, she was showing me how... Um, this is Enid. She, you break the head off, you break the head in half again at this certain hinge point, yep. and then you can see the back of the vertebrae, and you can actually suck the brains out through the vertebrae. Yep. And it, that it definitely tastes like brains. It almost tastes like sheep brain or whatever. And yep. then, yeah, I, I would always eat the cheeks and stuff, but a couple of bits of useful info that I, I should have known earlier. <laughs> yeah, you, you probably learned to use every part of the fish. Yeah, that, like, yeah. Even um, locally, most people don't even keep the wings. The wings just yeah, the girls crab bait, and that's probably the best part of the fish. They do taste great, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the wings is what I stood on because I was a bit lazy around the campfire one night, and I just chucked the wings on the ground, and then I think I stood on the wing, yep. and that's what it spiked me in the bottom of the foot. And all my cuts weren't healing very fast because I was not I didn't have a lot of vitamins. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So, did you take any type of kit up with you? I did take first aid stuff. Yeah, for yep. sure. Uh, I had um, bandages and stuff on the outside of the boat and a tourniquet if I did get eaten, you know, lose a limb from a shark or a croc. Yep. So I could access those from the water. Um, I had some 
antibiotics and stuff, which I didn't take, but I knew that that might... It's the kind of thing where if, if you're in a bad situation, you might need to request assistance and mm. just having those antibiotics ready to go will, will save that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I also watched a video with you, uh, your, uh, your emergency procedures, if, yeah. if the boat sunk out on the reef. Yep. You had a, a, a few things that... Was pretty cool. I, when I thought, thought of it, that's a pretty good idea. Like how you had it all set up with your um your, your paddleboard and stuff. Yeah. So the, the stand up paddleboard acts like a kayak. And I'd actually done an expedition in Tahiti where I paddle around this massive atoll and lived off coconuts and stuff in order to learn some of those um, ways of living off coconuts, but also to assess how good this stand up paddleboard was. And so it does work pretty good. So I can. My thing was, what's going to happen is I'm going to get capsized, which almost happened, and I might be 40 miles offshore. Um, or just about to blow up on a, on a reef and everything's going to get smashed. So I could just sit there in the life jacket, inflate my life jacket, but then that's going to be EPIRB time and then I'm going to need rescue. And I don't, it's the last thing in the world I would mm. want. So at least this case, if, if I have, I've got one bag with the uh, stand-up paddleboard and one just with my emergency grab bag, dry bag. So I jump over, clip it onto my um, life jacket, which also has its own PLB in it. Uh, I pump up, I have to pull out, I have to modify the pump so it didn't suck water and, and stuff. I pump up the uh, sup. I jump on top of it. I put all my bags and stuff on, and now I'm literally like a sea kayaker, um, just on a on an inflated um, sup, which is bad because if you just snick it, it'll go. Yeah. <laughs> um, or if a if a shark grabs it, it'll go straight down. But that yeah, you're pretty unlucky day if you have both of those happen mm. to you. So yeah, that way at least I could have paddled. I could paddle 100 k's if I had to. Yep. So I basically would have made it to the mainland, but I would have been see you later to the canoe. Yeah. So, yeah, that was the plan behind that, and I did practice it in the pool. I would I should have practiced it in the ocean. I just didn't have time. Yeah. No, it's a pretty smart idea to think like that because you're you're doing the um, you're doing the survival pretty along the coast doing it. The less um, you can impact you can put on anyone helping you or anything like that, the better because yeah, you've put yourself in this predicament. And, exactly. Yeah, yeah and it's, you just don't want to be a be like you see most people who put themselves in those predicaments because they they meant to be there. Like most of the Sydney to Hobart yacht rescues and all stuff like that. It's just a race sort of thing. Yeah, so yeah. they're putting a lot of lot of stress on the rescuers and stuff like that and risking well, people's lives. And exactly. And and I'm susceptible of being perceived like that as well. And I did actually um, rely on some help from the authorities when I was doing the testing, which I was quite embarrassed about, really. Um, I, was, I didn't have a, a little backup electric engine at that stage. And there was four factors that went against me, the weather, the current, uh, um, some other things, and a bit of equipment failure with a sail. And I just found myself out the front of Port Stephens. Um, it was, you know, it was about three o'clock in the afternoon, but the current was stronger than I anticipated. And I thought, if I if I don't request assistance now, and I can almost see the cop boat just going around there, it, they're going to have to do a night rescue on a Saturday night. Whereas yeah. if I just call up now, he's just going to come straight out here, pull me in, yep. and it's going to minimise any effect to him. But um, so I did request assistance. I got it, and they asked to put it on Facebook, and then it exploded on Facebook, <laughs> and everyone. There's all most people. At fact, I would say ninety percent of people were positive and going. No, Give him a break, you know. He's out there giving it a go. To, uh, oh, I, I don't see that sort of thing. It's when they when they're pulling up an EPIRB for a helicopter and stuff like that. There's, it's a what big on this one though. Yeah. A lot of people thought it was that, so yeah. that there's all oh you're wasting resources. So I already, I already felt like I'd used up my my brownie points for a yeah. rescue before I'd even left. Yeah. So that's why I did take that little ele emergency electric just in that kind of situation to get me out of trouble. Yeah. So um, yeah, that was a good. I'm glad. I'm glad I had that backup in case I needed it. Yeah, but and there's also the other side of it. Like you're providing inspiration for other people to get out and give stuff a, a crack. You're not doing it, and it's and no one's going to see it. 
It actually is. Yeah. A lot of people are going to see it and they're going to get inspired. Kids are going to get out from behind the computer. They're going to at least might go for a walk through the bush and try to catch a fish. Yeah. Just any type of inspiration is better than none. Yeah. So. I mean, hopefully I see that. But certainly the, the, the little the dudes on social media who are a bit nasty, they just, they just roll in on you. But that's, <laughs> that's part of the game too. And I need to hearten up. Um, it is amazing, you know, like one negative comment will be the thing oh, that you dwell on. Yeah, everyone is. says that all the time. And I'll be like, oh, come on, mate. It's not that bad. And then when someone gives you a negative comment, you're like, oh, come on. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny. It's like the human nature is um, you can do 10 good things. One bad thing wrecks it all. Like, yeah, there's a follower can win 10, 10 gold medals in the Olympic Games, but he gets caught rooting a chalk. He's known as chalk rooter for the rest of his life. Yeah, isn't he? yeah I've, heard, I've heard the goat version of that yeah. joke. Yeah, but it's true though. <laughs> so yeah. don't get caught rooting a chalk or a goat. It's the same with adventures too. Like you might you might have done every and so far up until that little thing, I'd never needed assistance once. But you need it once, and everyone's like, "Oh, see, every time you need help, it's like, oh, come on, people." But definitely, the next time I need it, they're going to be. There's, it's been logged in the media, so yeah, I didn't want that and. I know there is. There are some people in the rescue authorities too that um, don't like, you know, like to complain a little bit. Not everybody, mm. um, but I've come across that in the, in the even when I've done expeditions that have gone really well to plan. I've still got the lecture, um, and I. But I, I, which is a shame because it it means people don't log their trips with the authorities. Yeah. Um, so oh, I've actually done that myself. Um, I, I don't log my trips. I'm I'm not proud to say it, but um, I do enough prior to let people know where yeah. I'm going to be yeah. and I'll make sure I'm in contact with people the whole time I'm out there so they can sort of, I'm in a pinpointed area yeah. most of the time and most of the time it's just because I leave from a different area than the than where the VMR is so yeah yeah <laughs> you can't you can do it on the radio but I'm not a fan of even having the radio on because there's just too many fuckwits oh, on exactly. the radio. I, I don't want to listen to VHF 16 either no. unless I have to which mm. I'd never do because I'm a little vessel but I'm the same. I, I mean, I got to, I'm happy to tell this story. Um, uh, one of the big trips I did in the Kimberley, I logged my details with the authorities. I won't give them say who it is because I don't want to single them out. But I got back uh, three days before I was supposed to get back. I rang them up, called them, said I'm back, no worries. Um, I was then three days later, and on the other side of the country, I got a call from the authorities saying, "Are you Michael Atkinson? Yes. Well, you're supposed to be out at sea. Are you back from your trip?" And I'm like, "Oh no, I cancelled it three days ago." They're like, "No, you didn't." I'm like, well, "I did. I did." And then. I got the lecture and got told that I did a silly trip and all this kind of stuff. Um, and then that was the end of that phone call. And then it turns out they'd called my, my work and I was a helicopter pilot. It makes me look very unprofessional if it looks yeah. like I'm not counselling my time. And then I was thinking, they waited three days before they made the phone call. Yeah. They basically <laughs> lost the phone call. So I made a formal complaint. They went through the tapes. They realised they'd lost it. They realised that they'd been rude. Um, and they realised that they'd made me look unprofessional to work. They did ring up and apologise, which is good. But after that experience, I have I just don't let them know either. Mm. But I, I I do everything so if something happens, all the information's there. Yep. But if you work in those authorities and you give people attitude, particularly when they don't deserve it, you're putting their lives at risk mm. because other people, you know, won't won't tell you what they're doing. Another reason why I don't like to log the trip because your day can change out there exactly like you can yep. and they do say you can ring up and extend your time out there and or cancel it and stuff like that but this it's a day out on the water and it's just that's just another hassle sort of yep. thing yep. so it's it's to me it, i don't know that it's not it's, it's everyone still should do a trip sheet it's it's so like there's so many people have lost their lives just out off this coast yeah because they haven't done stuff like that yes but Having e on you, 
keeping in contact. I know which reef gets phone reception and which ones don't and stuff like that. So yeah, there's yeah. a lot of um, things like local knowledge helps. Yeah. And so just trying to keep on top of those, letting people where you know and people, a lot of friends know where I fish, where I spear. So it's not like, uh, it's not like I'm, they're not going to find me sort of thing. Exactly. And part of my, I've got to say, part of my decision there, and I'm not, I don't want to encourage anyone not to log their trip. I mitigate mine separately because I've got a, a Zolio thing. Uh, it's like a little satellite tracker, so I can hit okay where I am all the time. Yep. So I hit it twice a day, so my family knows where I am twice a day. Yep. And then if I do get my leg bitten off, I'll set it off. I've also got an EPIRB as well. So those things mitigate the, the fact that I'm not logging with authorities. And yep. if I do pull my EPIRB, it, it gives them a download of who I am, what I've got, what my emergency equipment is, the fact that I'm in a wooden boat. They'll have all the information if they require it. Yep. So you don't, if you don't have an EPIRB or a spot tracker or a Garmin inReach or a Zolio, you should be logging your trip. Yep. Um, with those other things, it allows you to extend um, as long as you want because you just say, I'm okay, I'm okay, mm. I'm okay, I'm okay. And your family's like, okay, no worries. And that gets around that problem where um, things are... The other thing that, that it saves people's lives is if you go out and you're outside range and the weather changes, you, you make a decision where you want to get back when the conditions aren't suitable because you don't want the search to start. Yeah. So I've done that in an island in the Northern Territory with a cyclone and we nearly died. Um, if we'd had a, some method of extending our SAR time, yep. um, we would have just stayed put. Yep. No, so there's twos and, twos and uh, pros and cons about that, isn't there? There is. And, and there's, no, there's no cons. We've taken a little satellite tracker which you can continuously give updates from. That's best solution for everybody because everybody yep. knows where you are and what's going on. Yep. I also seen the other day there's a... A real little um, GPS you can actually wear on your body. Yeah. So if you're a Spiro or anything like that and you get lost from the pack or anything like that, I've actually had that happen. I've had um, a person who's un, like my brother and myself are in the water. It was only on King Reef, but, and that's just off the current mine there, saying so just on. But I come back to the boat and this person wasn't a boat person. They were just like manning the boat for us. And I come back up and I said, Where's my brother? And he goes, well, I don't know. And I said, oh, well, did you keep an eye on him? And he's like, oh, was I supposed to? I said, yeah, I sort of explained that before we got in. And and I look up and about probably a kilometre in the distance, I just see his fins go down yeah. in the water. I'm like, oh, the whole time I thought, I can't find him. And I'm like, how am I going to explain to his wife that yeah. I've lost him? Yeah. And, and it's all because just... I'm not being prepared, having the wrong person in the boat. Yeah, little. Th I've learned. I've learned from that lesson, and just that feeling you get when you've lost someone uh, is just like it's. I'd rather be lost than losing someone. I reckon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, exactly. I, I don't know that device you're talking about, but just a little. Um, even a little PLB EPIRB like I've got. It's tiny. It's called the Rescue Me PLB. Yep. You could waterproof that and stick it on you. A rescue sausage. I've seen people's lives be saved by rescue sausages mm. when I was working out on the reef, like a. You know, this rescue sausage inflates a kilometre away and a captain just sees it. Without no rescue sausage, this Japanese person would have been, see you later. Yeah. You know, there's, there's stories about people being left on the reef and the, even they've stopped the search and two days later she, she finds, ends up on a sand spit. Yeah. You know, yeah, always have something on you. Yeah, I actually spoke, spoke on a podcast not long ago about I said all the reefs should have a spot on the reef where you just swim up and you can, like an emergency press button beacon. Yeah, you, so, could, you could. Yeah, you could do that. Yeah, just something, something like it's not not hard to figure that sort of thing out for maritime safety. Anyway. I, I reckon the solution for a lot of this will happen within a few years when um, this Elon Musk Starlink thing comes yeah. up and you get internet. Mm. We'll probably all have internet everywhere on everywhere. our phones. Yeah, I, I'm guessing. So um, 
That'll change the whole game. Yeah, it'll change the whole game for good and bad. And bad, you're right. Because <laughs> people will be uploading um, yeah. images and locations of great fishing spots and mm. everyone will go, Badunk. like now when you go surfing on the East Coast, everyone knows about it instantly. Yeah. Um, and you can't find decent surf without people. No, and I've got a couple of good spots out here I go surfing. I love, love a reef. So did you catch, come across any... Spots on the way up there? Did you for see surfing? them as well? Yeah. No, because I was always... Inshore. In, yeah, yeah, inshore, yeah. Uh, yeah, on, uh, five to ten miles offshore, but inside the reef. Yeah. The main reef, yeah. So getting back to the... Me- we sort of started on the mental side of things. Like, I, it's sort of... It's a bit different f- for you because you've done a lot of it through your life, but a person like myself, if I did your voyage, I'd be a changed person, I reckon. So Yeah, would be. Yep. Yeah, so how do you, how do you feel after that trip compared to before you went? Um, I feel the same, but I've, I've reset my benchmark for long-term hardship and risk. So one of the coping factors that you have for any survival situation or just difficult situation is you can always relate it like, oh, this sucks, but it's not as that bad as the time I did this. Yeah. So I've already got a whole bank of stuff in my life where like I've almost died here doing this and almost died there. And um, I'm quite conservative with my risk decisions. I try to avoid them wherever I can, but... I can always got a benchmark of, oh, yeah, this sucks, but it's not as bad as that. So I've got something higher there. To, yep. So it, it's changed me a little bit in that way. It's given me more confidence because I've really rolled the dice big time on this one and it's worked. Mm. Um, but it, I know that it's easy to think that, that the next one will work because the last one worked. Yep. And when you're going outside the box, you can if you start making that assumption, that's when you, you don't stay awake at night worrying about the risks and you don't come up with the mitigators and that's when you do end up dying. Yeah. So, But for someone that... Uh, had had no experience with this stuff. <laughs> I certainly wouldn't do it at all. Yeah. Um, but it would change you more. It, yeah. It's it was really quite tough, which is good because that's what I want to make a story about a, a story about real adventure. You know, not mm. not make up stuff. You can try and make a show about survival. Um, you know, Bear Grill seems like a top bloke, but I don't really like watching that because it's it's set up from yeah. beginning to end. So there's no there's no story there. It's just someone creating a shot list from beginning to end about that a producer's written about what survival might look like, which yeah. looks nothing like survival. Whereas this one sort of really is. And it, it, I guess it, in some ways it's been artificial because I'm trained in it and it probably doesn't affect you as much as it should have. But that's, but that's why I pick such difficult ones. So I still get that like, wow, I'm outside my comfort zone. Yeah. Oh, people like myself to see the journey you did is like amazing. And, and I've sort of got a little bit of... Um, knowledge of the area up there. I've done a lot of trips up that way. But um, someone in the city who's just like, that is just like out of this world. You've just gone to Mars pretty much. <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> felt, felt like it. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, that's a good thing. I, I mean, I'd certainly encourage people to get out and do those smaller adventures and that, that it's just a rewarding process. Getting outside your comfort zone, thinking about it, managing the risks, having some crazy experiences, getting back, thinking over it for a year or two, and then you go, wow, you know what? I don't remember anything that I did in 2003, except I did remember that trip I did here, yeah. and that was amazing. You know, without without these little trips, you, you, life just goes through really quick. Mm. I've, I've heard people say, and I agree with this, that people that go, oh, I don't know where this last decade's gone, that's when you haven't filled your life with crazy yeah. things. If you feel every month of every year, like I get to the end of the year, sometimes I'm like, oh, man, look at all the stuff. This year's taken forever. It's because yeah. it's been filled. <laughs> but if you're, particularly if you're stuck in lockdown, which you can't really help. But yeah. if you're just in the, the, the same job, the same thing, not, nothing much is changing. Every memory is the same. And it, literally five years later, you can be like, oh, what's happened in the last five years? I don't know. I can't even name one thing that's happened. Yeah, I've actually mentioned that. I don't know if it was in this podcast or the one I have with Yarns with Az and Taz. I followed, explained it. Pretty much said, yeah. If you do, don't. If you just live stagnant and you don't, don't change anything in your life, 
just you met just that time of from one year to ten years have you done it just goes like that everyone's like what happened my kid's grown up now it's like exactly because you haven't experienced anything to yeah have a have a marking point in the like a waypoint in your life yeah much. exactly they're waypoints mm. yeah you've had no waypoints but in the last 10 years yeah but if you've got a waypoint every two or three months there's like waypoints everywhere it's a yeah. map you're like well you can you go back and look at that map and go wow you know yeah, and i'm i'm actually in a bit of a stage where i'm i've got no waypoints so i'm actually really i've sold me boat and i'm actually but I've, I'm, I'm planning i'm building a bigger boat and stuff like this so I'm, I'm planning to so i can create more waypoints in the future yeah that's so, great that's great so it's it's i'm not i'm stagnant now but it's it's just to build up to, to creating a lot of waypoints that's the way i see it <laughs> yeah and you do need to you need to build up yeah yeah mm. i think for me if i didn't if i wasn't planning what the next waypoint is i'd probably get get into depression i would say yeah yeah, yeah and that's what i feel sorry for all the people in lockdown at the moment because they're in stagnant mode but mm. hopefully you can build while, you, while you're in lockdown right now build these build these um adventures in your mind and then start creating some waypoints in the future pretty much yeah uh, yeah exactly you can do a lot of research now that mm. will just um, and then and then lockdown will go quicker because you'll be like, oh man, I don't have enough time in lockdown because I've got so many things to do before my next <laughs> waypoint. <laughs> the thing that upsets me the most is a lot of people can't work from home and their business has been taken away from them, and then that also constricts you from being able to construct these new waypoints exactly. because your financially, your yeah. financially has been taken away. So I really yeah. feel for those people, oh, and yeah. yeah. Hopefully, all that can change very shortly. Hopefully, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like I was saying, I'm still feeling a little uh, funny after my. I got my first jab on a few days ago, yep. so I'm still feeling a bit under the weather from that. Probably just because I was in a bit of a weakened state beforehand. Yep. They, did, they did say you're 100% fit and well. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any food in my gut. <laughs> oh, that stage, my gut's hugely full. My my mouth is still burnt from the first parmigiana that I ate. <laughs> Because it just, just burnt, woofed. Yeah, woofed it down. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually had a chat with Az the other day, and he said, "Yeah, we're down the Bingle Bay Cafe with Mike, and um, he just woofed down two pizzas." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's actually it's been one week as of yesterday, and I've just decided yesterday, right, it's time to stop just eating total crap yeah. and just like start filling up with a little bit more common sense kind of stuff. Because <laughs> <laughs> I watched it on, I think it was Survivor, one of the Survivor shows. They let. Um, some fellow won a, a thing and he got to go into the city, uh, into the town, and he bought some hot chips after being 30 days with stuff all food. Yeah. Threw it up everywhere because the body couldn't handle it. Yeah, yeah. And so I've had that, like after the Kimberley, I had something similar. Um, the only thing I had access to was dried milk powder um, and muesli, and I ended up just getting completely chocked up. <laughs> and it was, it was really bad. But with this one, because I had the the coconut stuff, I, I deliberately maintained a sort of stretch in my stomach. Yep. So I could actually, when I when I did catch that fish, I could stuff more in and get more nutrients. So yep. I, I kept stretching my fuel tank out. So that was something that I actually hadn't applied before is maintaining a stretch in your stomach yep. so it can absorb more when, it, when the opportunity arises. I've got a funny one with that one. All my mates used to say it. They're big Kiwi followers and they're like, bro, drink lots of water all day because it stretches your stomach. So when you go to a buffet... You yeah. can just eat three times the amount because there's actually stretching in your stomach. Yeah, right. <laughs> I have to think about that one. Yeah. I mean, it'll get absorbed quick, but it makes makes sense, you know. Yeah. I mean, you can. People can die from drinking too much water, mm. and it can flush the salt out if you drink too much. Like, there is a fine line. Mm. And, and there is this myth going around in the army when I remember, oh, you're going to go through 12 litres of water a day. It's like, nobody. I've never seen anybody drink 12 litres of water a day. No. Um, you know, the average consumption, even in a hot environment, is probably only four litres. Mm. 
Um, if you it, it, now there's variations to that, but yeah, there is a thing called drinking too much water. But I do like that one. I like yeah. <laughs> it's got its applications. I, I go off a, a water bottle. Um, I got a five liter water bottle. Take to work every day. And summer, it's gone by the end of the day. In winter, there's three litres left in it. It's just, yeah. You just don't feel thirsty, so you don't do it. But I find if you can get the water out of the bigger water bottle and just carry a smaller one with you, yep. you find that you drink that more often yep. because it's easy to access and it's it's there. Yeah, you can drink it with one hand while yeah. you're driving the car and all that. Yeah, so yeah. that's what I found if you want to intake more water. Just ha- yeah, have a decant, like a small bottle that you can refill all the time from a larger bottle. Yeah, that's for in sure. The area. And don't drink iced coffee all the time like I. I'm, I'm going to switch to do drinking water again, hopefully. <laughs> well, we, we just had a coffee before. Yeah, exactly. I've had, that's about the third one today. <laughs> no, more than that, actually. <laughs> no, nah, well, I'm, I'm one of the most unhealthy people you, you've probably met. Oh, <laughs> so, you, don't, you don't look unhealthy. No, I, I, I should be a lot more healthy than what I am. I, I let the week, like during the week, I'm a pretty good eater. I eat well and um, drink well. On the weekends, I let it all go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, it's only two out of five days. That's not bad. Two out of seven. <laughs> so when when you got to the tip of Australia, I, I think we spoke about this in the kitchen before, but we're not here. Yeah. Um, the post you put up at the tip of Australia, it just looked like you were, you, you've made it, but also like there was a lot, lot of shit happened mm. up until that point. Mm. So there was a physical fatigue and mental fatigue. And emotional fatigue. So obviously the physical is pretty obvious. That um, emotionally, I was. It almost makes me emotional now thinking about it. But one of the things I worry most on expeditions is about people worrying about me. Yep. And I know my mum was worried. Yep. And I've probably been one of the luckiest things about my upbringing was that my mum never restricted me yep. in what I did. Um, it wasn't because she didn't love me. I knew she loved me. You know, I don't. I feel totally loved. But she she loved me enough that she would allow me to make my own take my own adventures and make my own mistakes and she yep. never complains she never says oh you th- should think about this risk so i've always felt totally responsible for my own risks and that if i die it's completely my fault yeah there's never anybody's advice that's filtering me from dying but i know she does really worry even though yeah. she never says anything and so she was actually the one that um was i asked her to log my positions each day it's just just to remove that from my wife who's looking after so busy with other things and, yep. and take that stress away it, it allows my wife to use the system of coping where you just ignore it and you yeah. don't think about it makes it easier for her mentally so mum took that on and um she could see a couple of times when like you had that new capsize i was sending more tick marks more often yeah she said did you do that because um sorry mate yeah all good mate yeah she knew why i was doing it yep no that's bloody awesome mate nice yeah so is that um yeah i, was, I, I became a lot more emotional it would just come to the surface really quickly yep yeah which is interesting i hadn't i wonder why that is i'm i'll, I'll analyze why that is yep um but um particularly in those last the same when i got around there and i got up to ti i was still in survival mode but it was a bit artificial because i was I, I moored at horn island and i went out with the traditional owner and um she showed me well we went to booby island because i couldn't get a permission to land there that's where i was going to finish um and she was showing me the massacre sites and she was just just telling me about the treatment of aboriginal people in, in that area and it wasn't said as a whinge yep she was just oh she was just speaking and it yeah, just, history and, yeah. and people always think oh they're always whinging it's like well they're just talking about their history and mm. it's rubbish history so so i found that really emotional um but she's very um adept person emotionally as well so she 
you know, she, I didn't feel like she was judging me for it, but that made yeah. me very emotional. Um, yeah. Yeah, but it's sort of settled down, but it, obviously it comes to the surface because it is—it's real risk oh, that you're taking, you know. So. Pretty much, yeah. Like you said, you know, someone else is worrying about you, and that's—I reckon—that's one of the biggest emotions you can um, in, 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 have inside you because you can't let them know how you are. Only the couple yeah. of ticks on the on the thing. So, yeah, letting them know how you feel is is or how you actually are is really hard. And I reckon it would would weigh on your soul. Uh, it does, yeah. And then, like you know, particularly when this, you know, you've you've pulled up someplace and you're just making yourself comfortable, well, safe for the anchorage, and then you launch the drone, and you see a big bloody croc coming towards you. Mm. There's a sunset, and you're like, oh, yeah, I don't think I'll tell them about that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not going to put a lot of ticks up at the moment. <laughs> well, I put more. I put more ticks up when it's dangerous. Yeah, that way they know where the last tick was. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's very smart. Though. Yeah, that, and that's why Mum was perceptive enough to know there was a lot of ticks that day. You know? mm. no, that's because <laughs> yeah. the, the, the search can start from that tick. Not, I don't want them searching six miles ago. Yeah. I want them searching from here. Especially when you get the north north part of Australia, there's a lot of current up around the tip. Yeah, that area in between the islands. And that was the problem um, because it was weather against tide and a squall hitting at the same time and so people say oh, we'll just stay off the water then but i was um trying to get around past albany passage before the next i already waited 10 days on one island i didn't want to wait another 10 with a, on a crocky island yep so if i'm sailing all day half the day i'm going to be sailing when the ocean's going the wrong way yep so half the day it's going to be dodgy and it was dodgy and so it was a calculated risk which i got through by the skin of my teeth um, and that's what happens on big adventures. Yeah. You, you can plan all you like, but sometimes you just got to take one risk to try and avoid another risk. That's one thing I was thinking. When you got to the tip, whereabouts did you park the boat to get <laughs> just, on the beach around? Just around, actually. I yeah. had thought about that a lot, thinking there's a good chance I'm just going to blow past it and not be able to get back. Mm. So I'd, I'd already changed the drive direction on my sail uh, well before. I'd swung wide so I could be coming back in against it and just nick the edge of it. Um, yeah. and then get into that there's an eddy that spins around there yeah and just the tide was actually just right i actually pulled up fairly close to it only only 200 meters yeah and i went up there did the filming and then i basically the, my phone kicked into gear and could work and then i had all these logistics to organize about yeah the the canoe stuff so i spent a lot of time just dealing with that stuff but yeah it was bloody good getting around there but i thought that was that's it not so bad now but the, trying to transit through torres strait and crossing some of those passengers the, the passages are not current was five knots you know yeah. my top speed's about four mm. and that was pretty epic on one day i almost ended up heading out towards gulf carpentaria once which wouldn't have been the end of the world the tide would have changed direction yeah. but i just didn't want to deal with that i was <laughs> I sort of i probably mentally just relaxed a little bit too yeah. much you know yeah and I've, I've noticed it even down the wet sunday islands between those islands because it's pretty much the whole world tide coming towards the water's coming towards the land and there's it's not going to stop yeah <laughs> yeah still got to get through so between some of those passages some big eddies run through there it is yeah the wet sundays is nuts like that it's mm. just just like the wet sundays yep. yeah it's like a it's like being in the ganges yeah in the rapids yeah. also with the the drone i watched the footage how you you finally mastered how to land the drone on the boat because i don't know if anyone knows how to done much drone flying a boat doesn't stay still. Mm. Even an anchored boat doesn't stay still. So <laughs> when you, the, you t and, and if you, when a drone takes off, it leaves a GPS waypoint. And if you move that b boat, it's going to fly back to where you were. So yeah. a lot of people have lost drones just by it flying back and dropping into the ocean where they were. Definitely. And so landing a boat on a moving, uh, landing a drone on a moving boat 
<laughs> can you explain how you did it? <laughs> yeah, so it, it is really tricky, particularly when you're on an ocean that's going up and down and you're the one that's steering the boat and it's really hard to steer and there's rigging in the air. So that combination of five factors makes it the difficult, most difficult drone landing I've done. So I developed this system, which I'm going to make a YouTube thing about because I need to share it. It's really good. It's basically like a piece of pool noodle about 10, 15 centimetres long, just sliced off. And then I get double-sided Velcro and I go around the battery pack of the end of the drone and back onto the pool noodle. So basically I have this nice, soft, floating, spongy handle at the back. Yep. Um, and it doesn't really get in the way of the camera. If, it, if the drone's looking straight down, it does. But it disables the sensors on the bottom, which yep. they can fool the drone oh, anyway over water, so that doesn't matter. They're a pain in the ass when you... <laughs> yeah, they are. So basically now, instead of trying to grab, just grab it with your, your fingers, and if you go too high, you can get the tops of your fingers chopped off, whatever. Hey. I've got this nice big thing the size of a tennis ball that I can grab. Yep. So I... I turn around in the canoe, it's probably doing four or five knots, and I have to steer it every couple of seconds with my hand. Yep. So I get it in sports mode, so the visual sensor's uh, disabled. I have it, I try and get it at head height. Um, so, and then I just fly it straight at myself with my right hand. My left hand's hovering over the elevator, so if it goes bad and it's gonna hit me in the face, I just go up. Yep. So I fly it straight at myself, and at the last second, I take my foot off the forward stick, my thumb off the forward stick, and catch it. Yep. If I time it just right, as soon as I take my foot, finger off the stick, it decelerates, yeah. presents the pull, the noodle to me, I grab it, and then I've got it. It tries to get away, it goes, <laughs> and then I just hold it down, and sometimes I have to do an emergency cutoff on it to stop it. Yeah. Um, so that all works fine, but um, it was getting into these modes. I think when I'm doing more than five knots, it won't allow me to descend. Even in sports mode, yeah. it says, we don't think it's safe to land. It's like, well, neither do I, but if you don't freaking land right now, it's... So it's a bloody nightmare. And while it's, while it's going into all these modes and you're trying to cancel those, the, the, um, the canoe's like jibing and, the, it, and heading off in a different direction and almost snapping the sail and it's ridiculous. So I've had about four landings which were just absolutely nuts, but it's a, it's a good method. It's, a, it's a, yeah, it's a good method of doing it. So I'm going to make a video about how to do that. <laughs> That's bloody awesome. I've... I've actually got one of those DJI FPV ones, the new ones. Yeah, yeah. And you think um, having that thing on your head, you it wouldn't be as good because you use a lot of visual with the drone. You don't use the screen a lot when you're flying yep. the uh, normal DJI Mavics, whatever. Yep. But with the FPV, it's all over your face, so that's all you've got. Yep. But you actually immerse yourself into it and actually it's just – it become you get very intuitive with it. Yep. And it's actually easier to fly than – than the other drone, I'll and, find. And how about landing? If you're if you're flying to yourself and you want to land it at your feet, do you have any issues with that? I find it the controls are right, but I, I bought a joystick and it 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 um won't go up or down. Even if you point it, you got to point it right at the ground oh, and okay. accelerate. So that means the drone's facing down and accelerating down because it's in a different mode. It's right, in like yeah. a flight mode. Yeah, yeah. So the joystick's good just for if you're flying through a canyon and you want to look like a Spate like yeah. a, a jet or something, but yeah, it does have its yeah. If you want to do like cinematography stuff like that, yeah. yeah, it's not really good. Well, I dabbled in FPV a bit, and I know I could get some great shots, but I just knew that it wasn't worth putting too much space of my brain into that and yeah. too many other things. But there are some epic, um, you know, the, the FPV shots that are coming out now next to waterfalls and stuff like that mm. from a cinematic perspective are just unbelievable. I'd love to be able to go there. But yeah. just, it's just too many other things. Just trying to get everything charging on solar and not burning oh, yeah. out. It's just nuts as it is. <laughs> yeah. that's, that's what I find that it's so, um, compared to the normal drones, it it can accelerate so fast, pull up. It's so more agile as mm -hmm. well. 
yep. compared to the other drones? Yeah, people are just flying it. My, one of my mates was really into it where I was living in the Middle East. And, yeah, people are, it is amazing what people are doing with those things now. Mm. The footage is just unbelievable. Like, they're, they're filming skiing. That's my favourite sport, skiing. Yep. And they're finally mixing those two together and getting epic shots of people skiing. Yeah. You know, motorbiking, motocross. Yep. I actually was supposed to go down skiing this year to... Uh, Falls Creek, they all got canned on the head, so yeah. ended up at um, Hamilton Island. So I didn't really miss out on too much, but <laughs> but I heard it was record snowfalls there this year. And yeah, stuff. and nobody else up there. Yeah. It would have been great for backcountry skiing. Yeah, right now, oh, it's locked down. Eh? That's the problem. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Well, mate, this has been a the longest pod- podcast I've done. It's uh, eighty-seven minutes. Oh, truth, you have hey. to split it into two, mate. Yeah, we should. <laughs> But mate, you're you're pretty much an inspiration to me, and um, oh, uh, definitely to As. And um, I was supposed to call As mid podcast. I was gonna chime him in, but he's out the reef, and I just know he won't answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's probably he's probably flying his drone right now, and it's cloudy, and he's like, bloody, he's bloody cloudy. <laughs> <laughs> so thanks for all you've done, mate. And um, I just I just reckon everyone. Um, I'll, I'll let you say all your sites and stuff, but it's pretty much um, Outback Mike on Instagram, uh, Outback Mike on um, www. Like on the yeah on yeah the, just Instagram. Oh, sorry, website is outbackmike.com.au. Yep. Yeah. So that's that's a good one to get on. Check all your your everything pretty much. It's, it's got some good insights and all your and then you can actually buy the some of the videos and stuff that you've put out. Yeah, you'll see the um the feature film from the Kimberley, but then it also links to my free um stuff. You know, going up yep. Cape York or whatever, which I'll be doing a more in future on. But yeah, just if you just Google Outback Mike, you'll see all the socials that come up as well. So YouTube, I'm definitely going to do a lot more in the YouTube coming up, um, chatting to uh, As and Strick and stuff. Yep. You know, it's a great place to be, really. YouTube, there's a lot of things yeah. about it, which are great. And it's pretty much the future of, of that sort of things. I think. Yeah, and but it's driving better content. Like, it's real what's on there. Mm. Like, when you watch on a standard cable channel, it's just constructed yeah. by a producer. <laughs> uh, so it's less entertaining, I think. Yeah, and, and mate, I looking across the table at you, you just look like the most honest, pure human being I've, I've had in the studio. So, mate. <laughs> well, compared to Az, you know, you're, you're <laughs> oh, a low bar. <laughs> pretty low bar, right? <laughs> you're listening, Az, I know you are. <laughs> Kent knows how to just, add some GST. That follow just, just kidding. No, I, actually, I mean, this, I only met as on this trip, and yep. um, he, he he's so full of life. Yeah, you know, I just love it. He's um, yeah. yeah. There's not many people with that much enthusiasm and, and charisma, and also with the right um, attitude yeah. and, and helpful. You know, worried about the environment and all that stuff. It's great. Mm. No. Well, you're pretty much my Malcolm Douglas now, <laughs> so I'm going to keep keep an eye on you. And so, if you don't know Malcolm Douglas's, check him out, and then have a look at um, Mike. <laughs> thanks for having me on. It's been too easy. Been great. Thanks. Thanks a lot, mate. Cheers. Oh yes, thanks again, Mal. I'm um, sorry, Outback Mike, get them mixed up. Anyway, this podcast is brought to you by Fishkins AU. Check out their new range, and also. off the deep range. That's the coral trout, the wahoo, and the mahi-mahi. If you type in the code TAJANS, all lowercase, you will get 20% off all that merchandise. But check out the new stuff because, man, it's ripping as well. So also, with uh, Outback Mike, check him out on Instagram, Facebook, and he has his own website. Just check, uh, chuck it in at Back Mike and um, on Google, and it will pop up. 
mate, I am so, yeah, I'm just so blessed I had Mike in this arena. And thanks again for everyone listening, all the new people that come across. Thanks for that. And um, share this yarn with your mate. That's all I want. I, I, I'm at work some days and I'm like, I'm, I'm running out of podcasts to listen to. I'm like, wish I had more sort of like mine to listen to, if that makes any sense. So share this yarn with your mate and let's just get this cracking. I don't really care where it goes because I'm a banana farmer. I don't need any money or anything. I just do it for fun. Cheers, everybody. Thank you.